Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM, let's create. Well, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, but the, uh, you know, the beginning of the digital age and the internet age and the shift in the way people, you know, took their leisure, you know, across um, a range of new opportunities, gaming building up, um, the the uh, the spoken written word perhaps changing in terms of how people responded to it, the amount of time they wanted to give to what you might call dense material, and then a sort of cultural shift that was resisting material that might be be said to be good for you. Some what you might call the patriarchy saying, here's your, here's your dead white middle-aged men uh, culture stuff for you. I give you Shakespeare, Mozart, and even, you know, Harold Pinto that was just saying, you know, we might want to watch different stories um, and, and we might want to reflect the incredibly volatile nature of our own age and its change uh, by, by being uh, either a little more connected to this material um, in some sort of souped-up new way, or we need new stories. That was Kenneth Branagh. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Um, I think in the three years since we've been doing this, we haven't had anyone on uh, that is British royalty. And uh, so today I want to welcome Kenneth Branagh to the program. He has been uh, making films both uh, behind the camera and in front of them since the 1980s. He has also been in countless uh, theater productions, both 
uh, abroad and stateside. His latest film is called All is True, and it looks at the final days of the renowned playwright William Shakespeare. It stars Ian McKellen, Judi Dench, and Branagh himself playing Shakespeare. Here's a bit from the trailer. There is no corner of this world you have not explored. No geography of the soul which you cannot navigate. Mr. Shakespeare, I don't want to pester you. Good. Excellent news. Cheerio. I just wanted to ask you... The best way to get started as a writer is to start writing. No, really, could I just... I don't have a favourite play. I admire all my fellow dramatists equally, and yes, I do think women should be allowed to perform the female roles, as is the practice on the continent now. Please, if you'll excuse me. Father, why are you come home? No more stories left to write. I've lived so long in imaginary worlds, I think I've lost sight of what is real. Will, it's Sunday! You miss church here, they'll find you. Talent has a greater scope than all the other poets, and yet you lived the smallest life. Family is everything. It's love, not ambition, that will blossom in this garden. Well, something has to. I'm not a good gardener, it's true. My husband thinks you've come home to die. I've just bought a pension. I can't die for at least 10 years or I'll be ruined. You went to London and became this great writer with a wife at home. You were hardly here. To us, you're a guest. Good night, husband. Retirement hasn't exactly brought the peace we might have hoped for. <laughs> you must write again, Will. People need you. My soul was empty. Your soul is not empty, Father. Your soul is the whole world in it. All is true. The recurring challenge on this podcast is talking to someone who has decades of work to go over and only having an hour to go through it. But uh, for the next 60 minutes, you're going to hear us dive into his upbringing in the UK, performing Hamlet in front of Queen Elizabeth at age 20, the themes he keeps coming back to in pretty much all of his films, uh, what it was like directing for the first time in 1989, taking a break from directing in the early 2000s, the idea of having a plan and not having a plan, we get into one of my favorites of his, uh, Peter's Friends from 1992. And uh, lastly, we talk about something I've discussed with James Gray here on the podcast before. It's about the middle of cinema, the sort of movies that were made before, I would say, 2010, and really before the Marvel series took hold of the studio system. These films were geared uh, towards adults, uh, generally dramatic uh, and then a little serious, and really the kind of work that Branagh specialized in for two decades. We will have to have him back on for a part two and three when he has a new film coming out, which I'm sure will be in the next, uh, you know, six to eight months. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode with the one and only Kenneth Branagh. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, <clears throat> how are you feeling? Good. Good? Yeah, thank you. Your movie is coming out uh, today. Mm-hmm. 
I, I actually wanted to start with uh, a, a quote from 1994. You have a movie uh, coming out at that time called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And as it was being released, you gave an interview to the New York Times. It was around the same period uh, of the filmmaking process where you're done with the movie. It is being released into the world. And you said, now I have no plans to do anything. I'm sort of spent with this project. There have been so many things consuming me while making it. An obsession with death, the usual pathetic search for the meaning of life. It's like a cloud hanging over you that doesn't go away until it's delivered. So how are you feeling now? <laughs> um, well, because I because I finished, I finished the film of All Is True swiftly. Um, I decided that I would make this film on a low budget on a short schedule um, and it was one of the one of those examples that I've, I've seen in the lives of um, artists so for instance in um, in the case of John Osborne English playwright who wrote uh, the epoch changing play look back in anger he wrote it in 11 days and uh, once I asked him about it, he said oh no but I was, but I was years years prepping that just came out quickly uh, or that story of um, you know Picasso when uh, in a restaurant, and um, the uh, the fellow who owns the restaurant says, so, "So you don't have to, you don't have to pay. You just 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 pay me something." Mm -hmm. And Picasso picks up the menu and goes, fut, 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 three strokes, and it's a dove. It's a little Picasso <laughs> dove. He says, well, that, 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 that even took five seconds." He said, "You have five seconds to draw, sixty years to learn." Um, so, the, this film about Shakespeare felt to me like it had started. It had started. Brewing as a as a project, maybe maybe when I was sixteen, seventeen years old, and it um, it when the moment came for it to happen, it the, everything to do with its um, uh, development in the script, the casting, the production, and the editing happened so swiftly and so naturally uh, that um, and it was so without without stress actually it was. Uh, it was one of those ones that just had a sort of natural organic quality to it so no stress at all i would say only the uh only the sort of creative pressure to make it as good as you can but not um but even then you know it was as if it was as if some of the um some of the atmosphere around it was an understanding that actually we were trying to present or allow for I I imperfection and blemishes. Mm -hmm. um, that's how the way we'd present Shakespeare, and the process of making the film shouldn't shouldn't be prone to the excesses of perfectionism and turn into fanaticism. And that in itself seemed like a sort of development. So, with regard to that quote from all those years ago, I'd say that um, I would with this particular project you're in a different place you know you're not you're choosing not to choosing not to see the uh, the creative process mm. even if it does deal with things in this case it deals with grief and the loss of children and uh, so plenty of death in all is true uh, but you have a different attitude to it i think and the the movie when it was finished was uh was left alone in a different way there's a line the usual pathetic search for the meaning of life which has made me laugh every time I read it. <laughs> well, uh, maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I wouldn't think it's pathetic anymore. But uh, there's the, the this film has the usual search for the meaning of life, and it <laughs> might might indeed eventually be pathetic. But uh, 
I've worked with Patrick Doyle, the composer, many times, and uh, he's a great friend of mine. And uh, he, uh, so he's he's uh, composed the scores for probably ninety percent of the films I've made. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was at the scoring session for uh, Thor, um, I remember him playing. I heard of that movie. Uh, <laughs> and I heard him record the the theme at the end of the movie where uh, Odin and Thor are are. In, in some sense, is sort of summing up how it went. This uh, adventure that seems to have lost them a brother mm-hmm. and uh, caused um, intergalactic chaos. Um, but the cue underneath it, the musical cue, really got me going. Um, my own father wasn't long past by at that stage, and uh, it did feel suddenly as though the film was very graphically about fathers and sons. And and uh, and I found myself. As I as, as I listened to, it, I went into the studio where Pat was with the orchestra and said, "Do you, do you always write the same score?" Because <laughs> I, I, I've just asked myself, well, "Do I always do I always make the same film?" Um, uh, is it? And it felt as though maybe it was always about fathers and sons because this movie is as well. Um, do you think you do? Um, well, I think there's something to the idea that you keep recurring and reverting to material right. that you're interested in that you don't really consciously understand the full uh, means by which it draws you or whether it, you draw it or you're drawn to it. Um, and, and maybe any of it's not very original. There are Some people argue there's only ever half a dozen stories mm-hmm. to tell and, and, and one of them would probably be this domestic story of the of um, the, the, the sort of domestic triangle, whether it's mother and, 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 and children or father and two sons. I always find that depressing when someone's like, there's only six stories to tell and I'm like, are there really? Are there really only six? It's a big stretch, you know. If you there are a few books that defend this. Yes, I've, I've, um, I've read those. Yeah, I? and so I think. So, what do you think about that? Do you think that um, essentially it's it's a neat phrase? It feels like a very clever phrase, but there are infinite variations. I, I think it on, on a technicality, you can make the theoretical intellectual argument that there are only three or four stories: the hero's journey, blah blah blah. I think to have that worldview is a little bit like being a pessimist to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I understand it. I just don't want any part of it. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't know how you feel. I feel sometimes that it's comforting, in as much as um, maybe it's an age thing. So, I find now when I when I'm doing this film about Shakespeare towards the end of his life, and what what was I noticing when I worked on plays of his at the end of his life, they felt richer. So I suppose when I'm comforted by that thought, it's as if you are returning to the same story, that it will be richer, that the wine will be more flavorful, that it will have deepened. It will have, it might be the same tale, but you feel completely differently about it because you experience it in a much more profound way, I guess. I like the idea of youth not being the be-all, end-all. We have so many... uh, years to go through of your life and only an hour to do it so i'm going to try to pick some moments for you you let me know what you think of them you're born in 1960 in 1980 you were 20 and you perform a soliloquy from hamlet in front of the queen can you walk me through what's going on that day in which you were performing in front of the queen i was at the royal academy of dramatic art it was their 75th anniversary and uh the Queen and Prince Philip were coming to visit. They, she was the patron of the Academy, so they made occasional visits, of which this was a big ceremonial one. And the principal, who was, wasn't particularly a royalist, but um, 
um, wanted to mark it by giving them a good old tour, including finishing with a little concert, which he called a miscellany, a word I loved, a miscellany of a student's progress through the academy. So that in this half hour, you'd see people fighting, a stage fight, lots of swords, see somebody singing, see a dance routine. And he wanted somebody to do a bit of Shakespeare. Um, and I think I volunteered. I volunteered for um, for a bit of Hamlet. And previous to this day, he'd, he'd had Sir John Gielgud, legendary Hamlet, Hamlet of the age and president of RADA at that time, have a look at me doing it. And it was uh, a nerve-wracking a nerve-wracking experience, uh, particularly talking to him afterwards. I found it was as if my uh, mouth was had been injected with something. I couldn't <laughs> sort of think about the thing about the Hamlet, the Hamlet, the to be or what not to be. Um, I like that you got to be or not to be at the end there. The lines were about the only thing I could add coherently. I couldn't use joined-up sentences that weren't Shakespeare at that stage. But on that day... So I'd done this really very scary rehearsal for Gilgood, but on that day, in addition to the to the Queen and Prince Philip, there was a a, a theatre full of rather luminaries, all the greats who'd been there in the previous you know thirty, forty, fifty years. I was absolutely stoked. Mm. We all we all were when 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 these people came to meetings at the academy, we 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 all hang outside trying to see Tony Hopkins walk in or or um, you know John Hurt or uh, or Alan Rickman or whatever. So they were all there. And I found it was wildly exciting. Um, and it was one of those sort of gladiatorial moments where uh, you were, you were like downstairs in the dressing room, I was prowling about like a sort of animal. Of course. Uh, knowing that it was like you had to sort of get out there. It was like a, like a, like a sporting occasion or something. And, and I'd had a really bad a couple of games beforehand, you know. <laughs> uh, but I remember thinking at the end, hey, I remembered it all. And I tore a passion to tatters, as Shakespeare would say, um, and uh, it was it was re- really um, very very intoxicating. I was I was as high as a kite afterward. Really, really um, like out of body experience. And with all due respect to Her Majesty and uh, Prince Philip, it was to be in that room with all of those other uh, ex students. Mm. That was a big kick. Did any of those ex-students uh, come up to you after? Not a single one. No, I think, I mean, because perhaps it wasn't very good. Listen, they let you do it. I think there was polite applause at the end. I think that was seen as fair enough. Uh, they That's good they, enough. They were never going to blow smoke up your bottom. Did you think when that was done that you can make this as your art form in your career? I didn't. I thought. I thought that. You know what? I really thought was that it was an amazing experience of how to deal with incredible nervous energy. Mm. It was really a big example of how you face the uh, the specter of responsibility for a for a, a big event, a big live event. You it face was, it by pacing. Uh, pacing, and then I well, pacing and breathing, and you know, I spent a lifetime since working out what is the ideal thing. I had a similar experience. It was for me anyway. Um, doing the uh, opening ceremony of the London Olympics, um, where um, instead of 400 ex RADA students, it would be 1 billion television viewers. Um, I'm nervous just now, <laughs> you describing that. It was nerve-wracking, because I was also surrounded by nerves. So it wasn't just me. Above me, we're in a very nice room here. This was about the size, maybe a little larger, of my dressing room, a temporary dressing room, uh, just out in the sort of side bit of the London Stadium, the Olympic Stadium. And uh, right next to me, through the left-hand wall, the Arctic Monkeys were practicing uh, um, Come Together, the Mm. uh, Beatles song. 
all day. I mean, they never stopped practicing. And um, so that was the constant sound. On the other side, um, Sir Simon Rattle with uh, Rowan Atkinson were talking about comedy. And uh, Rowan was like the man over the, the over the bonnet of a car. I mean, uh, like a boffin. He would just... And, and not having anything from Simon about um, inspiration. It was all about when a look or an eyebrow should happen. Above me, uh, the, all the kids in the ceremony were running, running around. They'd been given chocolate all day. So that, that was the building was moving because it was a temporary one. So it's a madhouse. Madhouse, and on the other side I'm hearing tears, and it's J.K. Rowling who's being talked off the ledge by Danny Boyle because she's got to do some reading and performing that <laughs> she's not done before for a billion people. I felt for her, but I wasn't going to go and help her because I was terrified myself. Right. Uh, so it was cacophonous, and inside that I remembered the moment you brought up that rada moment back in 1980 and it helped me out mm. so everything was coming undone the, the, you know were you nervous at all going into your first film that you're directing in 1989 yes um, two really intense periods of uh, apprehension one was the very first day and the, one, the thing I did to try and cope with that was not make it the first day so it was going to be a Monday morning the 31st of October 1988 um, and instead, on the previous Friday afternoon, I did the first scene, which I kept telling myself is just three shots. Mm-hmm. It's a wide shot. Again, a room this size, so I had the camera by the door, and two clerics are talking to each other okay. about the fate of Henry V. And then I would do a single on each of them. So just three shots. That's me starting my movie. Yeah. And... Um, I worked, I think on the way up to that, across that week, we were doing a play at the same time in the West End. Uh, I don't think I slept until um, we managed to do it. And uh, this sort of, Im- I mean, I kept saying it because I said, well, it, that's what it is, isn't it? I mean, if I say it often enough, I'll realize it is. It's three places where a physical object is put, the camera, mm-hmm. two places where two actors sit. and um, Door, this side of the table, that side of the table. And I was like, I said it like a mantra like that for this. So how could, what what, what could go wrong? Everything. Everything. <laughs> so, As someone who's trying to direct and have, has never done anything close to you, everything, always. And everything always is right because uh, at least I knew some of what the always would be. Actor in bad mood, actor doesn't like director, director mm. suddenly goes, well, maybe it shouldn't be three shots. Should it be just one shot? Should I be the other side and right. looking back at the door? Maybe it shouldn't be through the door. Which one should I do first? Is one of the actors going to be upset if I do him first? Should I do the two shot first? And we um, take it off the sticks. We'll do a dolly. We'll do the steady cam. You know what? We'll make it all one continuous movement where we spin it in a circle. Exactly. And sometimes people are telling you that and then the little mice get in your brain and you go, well, maybe they're right. Okay. <laughs> Oh, I'll do what he, she, he, he, she. Is that what the mice sound like? They do. They do. They, they talk like I talk like I talk to John Gilgood. To be or not to be. To be or not to be. To be or not to be. Tried to bookend it for you. To be or not to be. Do you think you did a good job on that first film? Uh, I think we, we did a wondrous job. I always, I think it's a we always with films. So, for instance, the. Uh, a, a ton of people kind of mm. saved me there. Ken McMillan, the cinematographer, taught me how to 
break it up in terms of interior exterior hugely helpful david tringan the first assistant taught me about when to cut and how, how to change angles uh, and he wouldn't the script super, supervisor really helped me out in terms of coverage phyllis dalton oscar winning uh, costume designer really found a balance peter frampton terrific makeup artist um, and then other people put their faith in me. Ken McMillan also, one thing he did for me was to say, you've got to keep believing in yourself. You have to. So we're here to interpret. So I'll offer some stuff up. But we re- really, you haven't directed before, but the reason we're excited to work with you is you haven't directed before. So you're coming with a, a point of view. You know about this story, and you, you know you've been in the theatre with this. You know what scenes you think are important, which lines, which moment is important. We want that from you. Don't lose it. Don't start thinking, oh, I better listen more to that. I think they know better. You know, it's you don't have to suddenly turn into, uh, you know, an arrogant uh, shyster, but just um, be- believe in yourself, and we'll believe in you. And then, and then they kept translating. Um, so I think we we did a we did a great job because a part of it was um, there was no British film industry. You know, we weren't prac. I wasn't practiced. I'd never been doing a film before. So I think just even finishing it was a blooming miracle. Okay, let's go to 1992. Oh my God! You make a movie called Peter's Friends. Mm. I rewatched it last night, and we're going to watch just a clip from it here. Some friends you know you will have for the rest of your life. You're welded together by love, or trust, or respect, or loss, or in our case, simple embarrassment. Stand clear of the doors. Mind the gap. I haven't seen that since uh, 1992. Really? No, I haven't. Uh, you end up watching the film so many times um, in post-production that uh, um, yeah, you can you can no longer see it. But I, now, as I see that now, I remember, you know, choreographing or you know being part of choreographing the uh, that sort of um, opening number. And uh, yeah, we all looked so young then. I uh, I, I found myself as 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 you. Um, Played that thing. That's Hugh Laurie, TV's house. <laughs> that, that's that's uh, Emma that's, Thompson. That's Stephen Fry, the multi-award-winning writer. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Emma Thompson, Oscar-winning Emma Thompson, and, and and Emmy and everything-winning Imelda Staunton and uh, Alfonso. But, but Romano, back then, you, know? you guys were just friends that came up together. Uh, well, they were um, uh, Emma and Stephen and Hugh and actually Tony Slattery, who was also in the in the film. Uh, obviously, I was married to Emma at that time, and um, uh, I, I I I made my second film, Dead Again, and 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 stayed in Los Angeles with Martin Bergman and Rita Rudner. Martin had been at Cambridge with all the rest of those guys, and uh, it was there that I, I um, when I was staying with them in Los Angeles, that the idea of Peter's friends came up. And because mm. because Martin had been a sort of ringleader with all of them, he'd been he was referred to as the David Frost of his generation, the great sort of impresario. He was going to be the the producing type, um, and so uh, yeah, it, it 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 grew out of that, and and it was so. I remember really remember, 
I, I always um, thought Hugh was a... Well, they're all terrific actors, I think, but I always thought Hugh was a terrific actor. But he, he boy, did he need to be persuaded he could do it. Um, and uh, He didn't think he could. No, he was he was definitely somebody who had had a you know question marks and doubts uh, about it, and uh, they all had incredible comedy backgrounds, you know, and they were they were burgeoning comedy stars, Stephen and Hugh. So so called um, you know this was a comedy, but partly with dramatic undertow, which uh, he embodied as a beautiful job in it. Um, but I remember that was that was part of my job on that on that film was was with some of those. Um, some of those people who are really skilled in comedy, Tony Slattery was another one who did a terrific job in it, um, trying to find this, um, whatever you call it, the bittersweet quality that, that was that was in the movie. And I, I really like that. And I always have done. I've always enjoyed working with people who are really, really sensitive to comedy because they, they do drama in a, in a really full way, I think. It is in that period one of the few movies that is not Shakespeare-related. In a way, it feels like it, it has to potentially represent... Or resemble something of being that age. Did you feel that? Did that movie feel like that's what it's like to be in your thirties? Well, if there was something about that, it was partly what I was hinting at. There was something about, you know, doubt, something about people being uncertain, you know, and having they're at a point where they're supposed to be doing or having things, mm-hmm. either the career or the family or both. Or to know what what life is now about, you know, something's supposed to be set. Yeah, set, and they're supposed to have acquired some level of maturity out of their roaring, crazy twenties. They ought to probably be, if they went through it, out of education, and you know, and earning a living, and uh, being somehow, yeah, at the beginning of some you know great career arc, or having the large or small family, and. And yes, and yet, and yet, I suppose the film was partly about saying, "Well, no, but we're all still crazy, mixed-up kids inside that pressure." Did you feel like you had figured something out at that point, or were you feeling that kind of doubt? Um, I think that's an interesting question. I think um, I think you probably asked yourself what characterized that age was asking yourself the very question you've just asked me. Um, was that you weren't sure that so many sort of synapses were firing away with what what might be possible. Plus, you were also aware, as it were, in the in the grander scheme of things, you hadn't made it. You know, you weren't sort of massively financially secure or whatever. You didn't, you know, terrifically concerned about the impression you made and whether people liked you or not, and whether you were doing the right thing and whether you were cool or not. Um, I think those kinds of doubts and fears were part of that age. You were concerned with that? Yeah, I think to some extent, yeah. I mean, I, I was at that point definitely subject to a sort of intensity of gaze through, um, you know, having a degree of success. So with, with Henry V and then Dead Again, which was a successful movie um, here in America particularly, um, and and then, you know, with, with Peter's friends, that particular group of folk were all on sort of on the up and up. So you put them all together and you kind of maximized the impact. And so just just in media terms, there were more people, um, you know, you were you were you were a bit of a flavorsome thing for a while. You know, it would be, so you you I think because you weren't used to that. Sometimes you dealt well with it and sometimes you didn't. You've mentioned in the past that uh, you don't have a master plan as a quote. And. Yet, I, I'm curious, because on a pure resume, 
it seems like you're someone who is concerned and focused on producing and making and creating a career. Uh, I, I guess I've had a, you know, fairly intensive work ethic. My mother used to just say I was restless. She just said I was restless. I couldn't sit still as a baby, just as simple as that. Something in me just couldn't, had to be doing something. Is that accurate? Uh, well, I, I I don't know. I don't particularly remember that. But I, I, I think there was something in me about sort of building groups and things. I think I enjoyed that. I remember as a kid, and I was still in Belfast then, so I must have been seven or eight, a bizarre request from my mother who wanted to know what um, I uh, wanted for my birthday. And I remember asking, curious thing, that if, if, if they... You know, if they could afford it, if they could, all if they could buy, we had this little five-a-side team, I know, football team. Could could she buy uh, the shorts for the team? You know, so we all had the same blue shorts, whatever, so because that would make us feel very grown up and whatever. Not even the jersey. Uh, well, I knew they'd never be able to do the 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 whole thing, and so yes, yeah, so Christ knows why the shorts were the important thing. Maybe I thought that was the way we could unify it because we all had enough white shirts, and they were. T- I, was, I was a Tottenham fan even back then, so I basically wanted us to be a little mini Tottenham Hotspur team. But uh, um, I remember her saying no to that, and her and and her being a bit amazed that why why would you want to go and sort of it's your birthday you don't need to give other people a set of you know shorts mm-hmm. and why why do you want to do that anyway and I've subsequently I've thought well yeah why did I want to do that and uh, but across uh, the work uh, I have often wanted to um, to uh, create these sorts of um, families or groups that are, are more the reason why maybe some master plan may look kind of visible um, because it feels as though there are sort of periods of time they're often you know ages they're often seven years you know where you suddenly get a group of films or a group of plays or or some sort of bit of artistic endeavor that with a particular group that stays together for that time looks like it was all meant to be uh, but really the the only the only thing you planned was who you wanted to work with uh, who you wanted to give that pair of shorts to and so maybe that maybe that helps give that impression of the of the master plan that feels like uh, a search for stability to me. Yeah. I only bring that up because um, in 1969, you leave Belfast and, and move to England. And I know your family did not want to do that, but your mother wanted to do that. And you spoke of this often, but I'm curious, now that you are um, 58, mm-hmm. when you think back on that period where you're moving as a child and you didn't want to move, what do you think that does to you as a person how does that shape you as someone who has to move and uproot at that age i think it probably i think it probably does destabilize you i certainly look at it as a sort of significant really significant and influential bit of my life because i uh, i did feel so um i did have a very you know uh, unforced sense of identity back in belfast you know we had large extended family in a small place that you knew well that you visited a lot mm-hmm. so sort of geographically you were very familiar with where you lived and everywhere you went you knew people so you really a sense of who you were and they knew who you were and you had a little peer group of people everywhere you travel you go visit and cousins would be there so you like you move around and you, the tribes with you this is kind of like how you make movies well maybe 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 I could um, be drawing a false parallel. I, I think. I think no. I, I think it's an interesting parallel, and um, I certainly felt that. Uh, yeah, that was that, that time in Belfast was where I felt. I absolutely felt the most me uh, I I ever was. 
But you weren't even ten yet. And what did the Jesuits say? Give me the give me the boy till seven. I'll show you the man. Do you believe that? I think it's a key key period. Um, one of so there's a key period for maybe a sense of identity and how you how you sort of relate to the world. You know, there are there are developmental patterns established much earlier than nine or ten years older in the first two years of um, a child's life. But uh, That's a real crapshoot, isn't it? Yeah, I you think just, it you is. You just hope it goes well. You do hope it goes well. And, that, and then, you know, if it doesn't go well, then there's this other critical period, at least in my judgment, which is through your adolescence, where particularly in the life of an artist, my, my experience is that I look at other people and their work in their mature years, and almost all of it is the recreation or re-exploration of, of what they were impacted with when they were, you know, 13 to 20. Mm. Um, I got a great friend and director, uh, Michael Grandage, theatre director and, and, and occasional movie director, um, Michael Grandage, and, and he, um, I talked to him about this, and he, he, all the plays he did, in a, he did a phenomenal series of work at the, at the Donmar Warehouse Theatre in London, which he ran, but nearly every play was a play that he'd seen during that adolescent period and been absolutely knocked out by, and he went and, he went and had his own experience with it, and I think I, 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 I'm still doing that because all is true goes right back to an experience with Shakespeare in in adolescence. Well, and it also goes to the thing you've said, which is fathers and sons. Mm-hmm. How do you regard your relationship with your father now? Um, as special um, and uh, a, a little more healthily normalized, you know, I think now I kind of rather idolized him before he went. And not that I, there's anything has emerged to make him less than the great guy I knew him to be. Uh, but now I guess I'm I'm happier to in, really feel the enjoyment of his company. He was a funny man. He was a twinkly man. And I, you know why I know that? Because I see it in my brother's face now, and I see it in my own in the mirror, because we both look a lot like him in the way that happens in life. You suddenly start looking like your dad or your or your <laughs> mum. And and, um, and uh, what I remember, that this was a, a wry guy, and... Um, I think that's what I miss about him. What I liked about him, he was he was he was warm and he was funny. He was quick. He was quick to tease, uh, but you know, a solid solid guy, a mensch of a man. You miss him? Mm-hmm. Yes, I I do I do. Um, but I, again, I keep, so he's uh, he's been gone thirteen years. So that's quite a long time, isn't it? And you 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 get um, yeah, you arrive at some different accommodation with. Uh, but in a way, you know. Um, you miss them on one level, but also you're, you allow your, your parents to be a bit more present in your life because it's not quite so tender or painful. There was a period during you know elements of, the, of their passing where it was very painful to remember them because you just remember them, you missed the you just felt the pain, you just mm. felt the, the the missing. And now I I, um, I I I can really remember remember the fun times, but I can also be a bit more dispassionate about some of the difficult times, particularly when they were ill, because they're in the past. And you have some distance from him. The distance, yeah, the distance is really important. And frankly, you know, as you say, I'm fifty, I'm sixty next year, and you you say, oh, well, there's a little marker, you know, and and if you're, um, you know, things things can happen. People get taken early, and you know, you never know how long you're going to be around for. But if you you do continue to have health, then you've probably done two thirds of your stay on Earth, haven't you? So it makes you makes you makes you think differently. Something that did happen in your career that has nothing to do with mortality, but. You are making movies throughout the 90s. Things are going well. Uh, you direct a film in 2000. I have this quote here. But you direct a film in 2000 called Love's Labor's Lost. And there is a period from 2000 to 2005 in which you do not direct. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that period in your life. How did you feel? 
uh, beat. I felt beat. I woke up on the morning uh, of the the release of you, the Love's Labour's Lost in the U.S. in New York. Uh, I was in the Essex House Hotel and I read the review in the New York Times, which was very bad. And that was following uh, a release in the U.K., which also had not gone well. And I felt that... Um, it had been really um, a miracle to get the the funding for this Love's Labour's Lost, a, a film musical version of the play, a play not often done. And um, it, the I was proud of the film. I was pleased with the film. It had done what I hoped it might do. And I loved the play, and I loved the sort of bittersweet quality in it. But um, in terms of its public acceptance, it was a, it was a, a round failure. Um, and I remember f- waking up in that hotel room reading the review and feeling really, really beat and thinking, wow, um, I, I, I want to step out of the ring for a while. That's what I felt. I really felt like I, the, 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 the sort of little, you know, for what it, whatever it was worth for me at that time, a sort of boxing analogy of uh, you've got in the ring to, you know, be in the arena and, you know, put yourself out there with a, an idea had been slapped down and that that was, I was battle weary. That's what I felt. So I went and licked my wounds. Did, did the string of successes that you previously had help at all? I suppose I wasn't in a position to take that with me. Subsequently, yes, but at that time, it felt as though that was it. It, it felt as though one had been sort of, um, yeah, um, that it wasn't even so much that you necessarily even kind of felt angry or disagreed, which is people with different opinions. But I just, I think the effort of it. You felt like you had failed. Um, yeah, yes, I think that. Uh, uh, well, I, th- I think that the the film had failed in the sense that people weren't going to go and see it. I didn't. To be honest, I didn't think I'd failed with the film itself. Right. But I did feel there were uh, a, a certain sense of injustice about how it had been treated, and that I was wearied by feeling that. How do you reconcile that disconnect between writing something, directing it, post production, editing, coloring, distributing? You kind of like it. It comes out, people in an hour and a half dismiss it. How do you reconcile that disconnect between the two? Uh, well, sometimes you don't reconcile it. You, you you feel it with a great big, with a great big sort of um, wounded, bruised um, reaction, and that's what I felt about that one. I really, I mean, I, I did feel I, when I read that review, which was, wasn't so much that review in itself. It was just that was the the culmination of what was clearly and conspicuously going to be. A reaction that wasn't going to help, but but also what 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 was um, uh, you know perplexing to me was that I'd been at numerous screenings of the movie where it played really really well. Mm. Uh, now that disconnection was 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 odd because it felt as though there was a reaction to the movie, and then there was the 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 decision to write about it in a particular way. Uh, I felt as though that was a disconnection I couldn't really couldn't really understand. But I was also prepared to to admit that I, I was the least objective person to consider all of those things. So I might have been in the room thinking, this is playing really well, as evidenced by there's laughter, there's concentration, people aren't coughing, etc. There's applause at the end. Oh, they've written all these horrible things about it. I did find that was a bit of a disconnection, but again, maybe secretly they were all hating it. How do you move forward from there? That uh, So that summer I decided to... T- I took the summer off. I remember doing that. I remember doing a lot of... Which seems... 
rare for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I took the summer off, and I swear to God, it was the rainiest summer in, in recent history. I mean, really, it rained. It was a grey summer. Really a grey, grey summer. The universe is trying to tell you something. Well, it was saying, saying you know, stop, shut up and listen. And then... Uh, and then I, and I guess I did listen. So all I did was I was a rec- I was a receiving a dish at that stage, and uh, and what I was lucky enough to receive was um, the script for Philip Noyce's film Rabbit Proof Fence, and a, and a script from HBO uh, called Conspiracy. And both of those things, both those things were, were in a way kind of dark materials. Certainly, Conspiracy was, and there was a darkness in the character I played in Rabbit Proof Fence. But they that's what led me out of that, and also. It led me to um, the real enjoyment of working with uh, other directors. I think part of the reaction I'd had was something you were talking about there. So there's all that effort you make that takes place over quite a long period of time, and you can. Uh, and if it then doesn't work, you can feel a bit isolated. And one of the things I w- w- ran back to after that rainy summer was a company and inspiration. I enjoyed working for Philip Noyce enormously. He's incredibly technically mm. gifted. Uh, director and with he was working with a subject matter that was completely out of his gut, so it was great. Something interesting in the system in which you were making these movies happens when that film comes out, because you worked all through the 90s, and I kind of regard the 90s and the early 2000s as sort of the, the end of an era of a kind of movie that studios were willing to put money towards. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think I would call them adult-geared drama, a non-tentpole 30 to 40 million dollar in budget films and the bottom just fell out from that almost entirely uh, with the exception of a few filmmakers when you come back in 2006 what are you making of the new system in which you have to operate in i was on the fringes of it i i stayed as it were closer for a while to um just a lower budgeted independent fringy world so the three films I made when I came back into directing were uh, first uh, a low-budget $5 million As You Like It for HBO, uh, which eventually played on TV, and then um, a privately funded Magic Flute by uh, uh, Mozart, uh, and then um, a low-budget sleuth for Castle Rock, for whom I'd, uh, I'd made films in the 90s. Three movies in two years. Yeah, and, and, and by a, a quirk of fate, I think they all came out in the... Uh, in the autumn of 2007 to an indifferent response. I mean, came out like week by weekend by weekend. It was a bizarre thing to happen in the UK. They were all di- different distributors, and they decided in their infinite wisdom, let's do it one Friday after another. And um, that was another sort of salutary moment of going, wow, you know, uh, I'm discovering uh, at the moment it doesn't feel like there's an audience for wanting to come and see my film of As You Like It or The Magic Flute or mm. Sleuth. Um, and that was... That was that was a, a sobering moment, um, more, more so even than what was happening, as you describe accurately, I think, in, in, in 2000. You felt a personal indifference. To be honest, I didn't feel it so personally. I was very aware that I was not going to be making the tentpole magic flute movie, um, but that that, had a, that was a, a little more built into a kind of, you know, longer arc of presence mm-hmm. in the, uh, in the, you know, in the, in the minds of cinema goers. Um, 
As You Like It was another sort of attempt to do something with Shakespeare that was a little unconventional. We set it in a Japanese um, environment, and I think some people found that difficult to get. But again, I liked the I liked the films. I enjoyed working on the films, but I was I found it more of a conundrum rather than a personal slight. I mm. started to in two thousand, no question. I felt done in by by the reaction but then i started to just be a bit i became engaged again in what it would be that that i knew i liked making cinema i knew i liked going to the cinema i saw there was a big shift in what people were interested in and so i i got i got more caught up in that what do you think caused that shift as someone who's been making these movies and in that era i'm fascinated to hear your point of view on what do you think has happened well, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, but the uh, you know the beginning of the digital age and the internet age and the shift in the way people you know took their leisure you know across um, a range of new opportunities, gaming building up, um, the the uh, the spoken written word perhaps changing in terms of how people responded to it, the amount of time they wanted to give to what you might call dense material, and then a sort of cultural shift that was resisting material that might be be said to be good for you. Some what you might call the patriarchy saying, here's your, here's your dead white middle-aged men uh, culture <laughs> stuff for you. I give you Shakespeare, Mozart, and even, you know, Harold Pinto. Mm. Um, and so uh, I think there was already the beginnings of a sort of tectonic shift that was just saying, you know, we might want to watch different stories um, and, and we might want to reflect the incredibly volatile nature of our own age and its change uh, by, by being uh, either a little more connected to this material um, in some sort of souped-up new way or we need new stories. And so you adapted I guess I adapted, yeah. You I, guess the next movie you made was <laughs> Thor. <laughs> well, it, for me, that was a... You have yeah. to admit, that is, for, for most people looking at, they're going down the line here. They're like, Kenneth Branagh, Shakespeare, 100 plays, all these films, Thor, with Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Nothing against Chris Hemsworth. I'm sure he's a lovely person. He is a lovely person. You do um, cast Anthony Hopkins, which is a great move. But it is a surprise. It is a surprise. And it's enshrined in my memory, um, this is how long ago it was and how um, sort of prehistoric I was in the technological age, is that uh, I came out of my bedroom and I had an old fax machine. And in the fax... What were, are those? Exactly. Uh, in that Faskimile in that, uh, uh, machine was a piece of paper from my agent, uh, uh, new agent, um, uh, Robert Newman, saying, uh, would you ever be interested in directing a film of Thor? And um, in an instant, so weird, uh, so there's a fax, uh, and then the moment I saw the word, I was seven years old in Belfast, coming back from Sunday school, and walking past, because it was shut, because it was Sunday, the... Um, the, the little shop at the bottom of our street, but in inside was the little magazine rack with the kind of Technicolor, incredible yellow flaxen-haired top of Thor's head uh, that was the Marvel comic. And so I, the, it went on like a light. I thought, well, yes, I am. Yeah, I am. So we started a conversation that took a long time to kind of develop, but uh, then uh, the rest, as they say, is histrionics. Another story about a father and son. Indeed, yeah. Especially that one. Yes, it was. It was an... Um, 
Yeah, it was. It was a. Uh, I loved that um, dynastic drama, and it was a really. It was a pleasure to. I didn't realize when we cast Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston. Hard to imagine now thinking of them as just actors without a kind of conspicuous public profile coming into the room and and just being candidates for the roles. But I didn't realize how sort of seriously and chewily they would take the roles and, mm-hmm. and respond to a lot. We did a lot of rehearsing for that film way in advance and how, how, how much they'd go for engaging with Hopkins. I have a question just practically, which is the set of these kind of movies, they seem like a massive undertaking. Mm-hmm. How do you command that ship? How do you how do you keep it afloat? Well, it's difficult. I mean, the first day of shooting on Thor had five camera crews in the ice stage that we set as our heroes go to meet the um, uh, Laufey, um, the uh, the the soon to be nemesis played by Confior, who was also there, and we had assembled a group of ice giants who were at that stage um, real six-foot-six stunt guys who were on one-foot lifts and covered from head to toe in latex, which they had been... Uh, they'd been up since 2 o'clock in the morning to do that. So so servicing, that's a whole army. So maybe just the Ice Giants bit of it is like 150 people. And then, then the, all the principals with the new costumes for the first time is maybe another 150 people. Then the five camera crews is maybe another 150 people. Then we're on the set. And then, then there's just the coordinative thing of like when someone speaks, are any of these 450, 500 people listening? How will they know where to get to it? And, and that was a lot of sleepless nights, to be honest. Imagining what I've just told you, it wasn't like I'm, I'm, re- I'm retelling this now that I know that it was the truth. I knew it was going to be the truth in the weeks and months leading up to it, and I was, I was, you know, terrified. But you start with, um, okay, the, what do we do? Back to we were talking about Henry V that first day. It's a camera out there, and it's two men here. Okay, Thor will stand here, so I'll need one camera pointing at him. Let's start with that. And that camera is going to be here, and this is going to be here because it's Thor. So he's there. It's nice depth in the set there. That's what we'll start with. Okay, now where's Loki going to be? So I'm going to do this step by step by step, and then I'll do I'll do that all with stand-ins. Okay, so you don't need to get the, all the principals who are there with their many costume people in their uncomfortable costumes. And then you build it up, and suddenly now it's half past nine, and now it's 10 o'clock. Now you're shooting the first thing, mm-hmm. and then suddenly a momentum takes over. You can't believe it's happening. But as long as you sort of set up this kind of focus about step at a time, that vibe goes out to people who then go, you know what, in my role as lowly um, you know, third assistant runner whose job is to get the coffee for the king of the giants, I will be equally measured. I will, I'm, hearing a, I'm hearing a calm descending out of this kind of pyramid of uh, communication and somehow it starts to get done and then and by that stage you have forgotten that you were terrified how do you not become to quote you earlier in this interview a, a, an egotistical schmuck in that situation where you have to command so many people isn't that a challenge you're sharing it all the time and you know you're a um you're a little guy I don't have I don't have a walkie-talkie. I'm a little guy in the middle of this, and the person I'm commanding is the first assistant. And there's no command. All I'm saying in this case is a nice, very nice French guy called Luc Etienne. Luc, that's where Thor stands. Okay, let's get the him there. One camera. Let's get him lit, and when he's ready, we'll bring Chris on. Um, so I don't. The, a mistake I think is to 
you know, get on the old um, walkie-talkie or the megaphone. Or I tell you what, I like to do. Uh, well, you ask, how do you command? I think command's the wrong word, but how do you? How are you effective? You got to be right there by the camera. I've seen it lots of times. Directors who are back in the bank of uh, video, you know, village. video village, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I, I kind of I'm amazed that it can get done that way. I can't do it that way. I need to be right there, right yeah. where the camera is. It sometimes feels like directors are in like a hotel three blocks away. It's amazing to me. I mean, I literally don't know how that can happen. I don't know how. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how it could. They maybe, do it easily. Well, maybe. Yeah, I guess so. I guess they. You know, and then they are they are voice of God guys, aren't they? Um, I mean, some people do it because they're of an age. They want to be back there and sat. They can't be running about. But I like. Uh, I always had the image of directing of the old Hollywood thing of the guy sitting underneath the lens looking at the acting. But then, of course, I am, you know, completely dedicated to understanding what's happening with the performance. That's the center of it for me, you know. Um, I've done a lot of prep on how it's going to look, you mm-hmm. know, which lens we're going to use, what, you know, the angle. And in that show, I was forever doing dutched angles, which drove people mad. But when we were shooting, I wanted to be right there seeing what was happening in Chris Hemsworth's eyes or Tom Hiddleston's eyes. You said Shakespeare, the older he got, potentially the better the writing was. Do you feel the same is true for you in directing? I hope so. I'm maybe not the person to judge, but my feeling is that I get... Unfortunately, you're the only person sitting with me right now. Right, okay, so I'm going to tell you yes is the answer. Um, (laughs) uh, Because I think you get to do... uh, Here's what you judge better, I think, is that all the things that are already working. So one of the things you get to understand, given that uh, directing is a sort of interpretative interpretative, uh, sort of form, I'm not the original creator... Uh, at least that's the way I view it, you know. So I'm seeing a script that comes from somebody else, a writer. I'm seeing a performance that comes from a a director and, and uh, from a, from an actor. And um, what I think I'm better able to do now is try and get the maximum out of those things. Is is have the maximum of that input. My job is to select shape, but actually get the most out of it, the most contribution. Not say, hey, you know, actor X, only give me 40%. I'll do the other 60% because it's my film. Do you understand? I want 100% of, of what that imagination, which is going to surprise me. I, I, another thing, another example of what happens when you get a bit older is you welcome the surprise. You're, you're grateful. You're not threatened by it. You don't go, well, that's not what I imagined. Why are you shouting? I thought it was a whispered line. Um, you go, oh, that's all right. Oh, no, I can work with that. Good. You're after that happy accident because you're more confident about how you can how you can use it um so you say less you listen more you accept more and you get you know the maximum creative input um, from your collaborators after all the films you've made what's something you're proud of and something you're not proud of doing this job for as long as you have um well i think one thing i'm proud of is doing this job for as long as i've been doing it I think that's a there was a statistic a few years ago which said that you know of the like the of of all the members of the directors guild in, in the UK maybe 8, 85% of them had made only one film mm-hmm. and then at the other end of it it was like the top 3 or 4% had had made more than 5 and that was a group of people that included Danny Boyle and Mike Lee and Paul Greengrass and me and a few other people pretty good camp but I also understood how difficult it is. I've got plenty of friends who've made one film and who have got many more films in them and for whom it's been extremely difficult to get that second one off the ground. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I've managed to do that. And then uh, I'm not proud sometimes of just... I think what happens, it used to happen more when I was much younger, is that you just get 
impatience makes you a bit sarky. I think that I, I'm not proud of times in the past when I have been sarcastic unnecessarily. I think one of the things that <clears throat> when you get tired and when you get sort of overworked, I think you can easily use sarcasm, which when you're in a position of director, I think can have a, a larger weight than you realize. Mm -hmm. And so you've made life more difficult for somebody whom you've directed some you know, snarky, sarky thing. It's, I'm not a guy like that, so I wouldn't want to try and put anybody down, but I absolutely understand that I have, without quite understanding it, been a sarky git, and, uh, and other people have, you know, suffered from that, you know, so I, I, I try and not do that. Is there something you wish you knew in your younger days as a filmmaker that you now have learned besides not being sarcastic? Power of silence. I wish I'd been a bit quieter. I always still do, but I always I really used to give way too many notes to everybody just too many words, too many words. You know, you like you made your point and then you say it another nine times. Why do you think you did that? Uh I think sometimes not convinced I'd made my point, sometimes insecurity, I think, by wanting to kind of make sure that, you know, you really were giving the impression that you knew this very well, you were very complicated, very complex, master of words, you know. Um, and it was both exhausting and I think ultimately, in certain cases, confusing for the poor recipient. Can we talk about exhaustion before we go? Yes. <laughs> Are you exhausted now? No. I'll keep going with it. You've made uh, uh, truly, for me, an incalculable number of films and, and also how much you've performed both on stage and film. I can't do those numbers. I'm not good with math. <laughs> it's a lot. Your mother said you were restless at seven. Why do you think you are? Because I think she was right. <laughs> I get excited by creativity, by what I do. And I you know, increasingly, you know, as I started working, you're looking at a guy who did not expect to have a career in show business. So I just came from a background where this just wasn't it just wasn't on the radar when it was it was for me set at a very modest level of ambition could i be employed as an actor could i just regularly get a job didn't even have to be as an actor could be as a stage manager as mm -hmm. a technician but someone in the theater could i make a living for, yeah could i make a living forget about film and television could i in the theater make a living in one of these jobs but i'd prefer acting felt like i was the thing i was best at because i wasn't very good at stage managing so then i i started to do that and then when i became involved and realized that i was making some progress that to me was it was it was astonishing it was astonishing to get that next job or get that break or, or, or when you were in that position like a, a movie I did, a television movie To the Lighthouse in 1982 terrific director Colin Gregg wonderful actress, I saw her the other night in, in at 92 she is Rosemary Harris in, in New York uh, who was leading a cast of people who were brilliant to watch, uh, Michael Goff who was the first Alfred in uh, in uh, Batman, uh, in, in Michael Keaton's Batman and uh, Anna DP Ken Westbury who listened to every question I had about why do you put the camera there what are those funny rails etc being excited by my god people are actually listening to me people are answering these questions my god people make stuff and then 
you know, the career going in a way that seemed to, doors were opening. So for me, this kid who didn't know that he could even be in show business, then didn't, you know, expect to work in the theatre, then did. It kept expanding. And as it expanding, I expanded, I got more and more excited. And that excitement has never stopped kind of, you know, shooting out into the universe and, and thinking, you know, if you have these opportunities and if you have this passion for it, then do it, do it. Have you had to sacrifice life outside of the work because of the work? Um, I think it's a big word, sacrifice. I've, you can I've, change the word. Uh, well, you know, I've just followed the path I've followed, you know, where it's just with what I've just described, with that, with that, that drive, that enjoyment, that, that, that relish of this incredible burgeoning opportunity to be in the creative arts. I suppose I've taken those opportunities, but I've not consciously, I've definitely not consciously tried to um, not have other elements of my life, uh, but I, I've just done I've just done what I've done, you know. I bring that up because there's a quote from 1994. I keep going back to this year. Yeah. It's friendship and love that make life worth living, you said, and even those things are tremendously confused. I think I was trying to be deep then. Um, and now? And now I know I know myself to be shallow. <laughs> Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. Okay. I won't even phone a friend on that one. That's great. I have one final question before you leave. Are you happiest in your life when you're directing? I think happiness isn't the word to describe that state. It's a, it's a, it's a, a heightened state of creative alert that is um, all-consuming but it includes many more things than happiness because um, sometimes it can be a very uncomfortable thing um, but it's very fulfilling engaged maybe engaged is a good word for it I like that you've constantly changed my words <laughs> throughout this interview um, that's what conversation's all about isn't it you have no master plan, but I do have to ask you, since we're leaving, and we may not talk again, though we may, what do you want with the rest of it? I would very much like the experience for my um, soul, if you like, that I had on All Is True to pervade as many of the other projects I'm lucky enough to do, if any, uh, post this moment, because the the naturalness with which it emerged as a piece of work um, allowed me at this time in my life to m m more fully enjoy it than, than than anything thus far. You finally enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Enjoy, enjoy actually having the sort of ability to enjoy it while still acknowledging what we've just been talking about is that the... Uh, Happiness feels too too thin a uh, sort of word to 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 describe uh, having a good time on a film, uh, but if you can enjoy it in the middle of understanding that it will be a sort of fire and water experience, you know, be full of trials and things because that's just in the nature of it, then I feel like I've learned something. Well, Kenneth Branagh, I feel like I've learned something and I've enjoyed our time deeply. Ditto. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a lot, mate.
Special thanks this week to Bumble Ward and Tim Moore for making today's episode possible. Talk Easy tapes at York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. To learn more about this wonderful studio, you can visit their website at yorkrecording.com. As for Kenneth, his latest film, All Is True, is now out in theaters around the country. You can learn more about him and the film on our site, which is talkeasypod.com. On there, you'll find other episodes with directors like James Gray, Werner Herzog, Rob Reiner, Kelly Reichard, Sean Baker, and Chloe Zhao. If you'd like to donate to our listener-supported program, you can visit our website at talkeasypod.com slash donate. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And as always, the show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our booking is by Ian Chang, our social media is by Crystal Farmer, our new intern is Ghani Zur, our music is by Dylan Peck, and the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I will see you next Sunday with the wonderful Jackie Weaver. And uh, now, here's a song to play us out. Enjoy the long weekend, everyone. I'll take you a million miles from all this But you want a better star Come on
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.